Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast, episode number 40. I'm your host, Jimmy Haggett. Joining me, as always, although from a foreign and distant land, my charming co-host, Joseph Stanford. Joe, before we hop into today's episode, talking about chapters 13 and 14 in the beginning of Infinity, tell us where in the hell you are right now and whether or not you're in danger of being hit by a high tide. Uh, high tide is coming up higher, so we may need to uh, ascend the hill as it comes up. But uh, I'm currently on the Greek island of Mykonos. Um, I'm actually exiled here for the time being um, because my credit card stopped working right before I came here. Of course. So uh, um, naturally, I'm exiled on this island until July 15th when my new credit card comes in. And then hopefully I'll be able to pay for the ferry out of here. Uh, do you have any cash on you? I mean, are you really just completely moneyless? Uh, I got some cash okay. and I got some friends, so I have uh, a few options, but I think it's more fun to be exiled. Pidgeolet once had sage advice for traveling. He said, never go anywhere where money doesn't matter. And, uh, I always think about that when I'm traveling. I don't want to go anywhere where I can't use money to solve a problem. Yeah, no, that's that's one of the things I've been trying to do. Always have cash because cash just gets you so much farther than anything else good. You know, a plastic, a piece of plastic is pretty invaluable in foreign countries a lot of the times. Um, but, you know, a, a good wad of euros will really get you, say a lot, get you a long ways. Cash is king. So my mom always told me that. Um, well, good. Very good. So this is this is part of your part of your travels. Why? Why Greece? um greece so actually um a friend of mine my friend logan brought up that he was going to go to greece um it's just a spontaneous thing that he said he was going to do he's going to go for the fourth of july because what better place to celebrate the fourth of july than the actual birthplace of democracy aka greece so he invited me and i jumped on that offer uh i think greece was one of the first places in europe that opened up travel Hmm. so there's not a whole lot of places letting people in. Um, There's still like a lot of COVID restrictions here. It was a real big pain in the ass to get like all the COVID testing and everything to get over here because I'm not vaccinated. So it was uh, a little bit of a struggle to get the COVID test. It took me a couple of tries to get it right just because of the timing. I mean, you have, you have the rapid antigen tests, you have the PCR tests, um, the non rapid PCR tests, and they're all are only valid for different durations of time. Mm. And uh, they also vary in the amounts that they penetrate your nose when they do the test. So, um, yeah, I've got I got the full range, full range of all of them, full range of the uh, insertion lengths. And long story short, I finally got the right test combination to get into Greece because it, it takes like 24 hours to get here, like traveling by flight. Huh. So you got to factor that in. It's like 24 hours before your arrival to Greece, not before your flight leaves for Greece. So it's just, it was very complicated to figure out how to do it. Um, it amazes me how many people, how many Americans have figured it out because it was not straightforward for me. Well, what have been some of the highlights of the, uh, have you gone to, you know, the some of the famous sightseeing locations or are you trying to set the beat? Oh yeah. The water? So Athens is like where a lot of like the main sites are, like the big iconic, like the Parthenon and the, the Oracle at Delphi. Um, they're all in that area, more or less, um, which was cool to see. It's cool to see others. There's also this tons of museums, tons of like real old statues, and real cool stuff. 
Um, something you'll like, Jim. I know that uh, you're a big bathroom guy. Um, the bathrooms here are definitely uh, <laughs> definitely different than the U.S. bathrooms. Um, and and that they're first of all, the doors close or what's the? Yes, the doors actually close. There's no cracks in between the doors. Like that's whenever you're in a bathroom, no one can actually see you. Huh. Like in the U.S., there's idea. cracks. Like right, sure. Yeah, no, you can you can peep on people. People can peep on you as right. you're walking by. It's like there's no real right. sense of privacy. It's a little good. Um, here it's totally different. Yeah, you get your own room. It's like you get your own room to use as a restroom, which is nice. Yeah, um, that is nice. So, oh, you'll like this, Jim. So, so you're not allowed to flush toilet paper here, right? Because the sewage system is like so archaic. It's so they give you they, yeah. There's a trash can. You just put your toilet paper in the trash can. When you right. It. Right. So that's yeah. a, that's always good times. You know? That's always good times. Yeah. I, uh, I had to do that. I, I've traveled a, at least one place, maybe two where you had to do that. And I was wondering how many people just say, no, it just, selection. <laughs> I did not. You know, I that- one in the, in the waste paper basket, quote unquote, but, uh, <laughs> Boy, it was sure tempting to break that rule. That one. Uh, That's a follow. Yeah, I've been working my way up just progressively. Like I started with just flushing one square. There's no problems. I did two squares. No problems. I think I'm up to about three or four squares now. Uh, so I'm just going to keep going until uh, I figure out like what the, well, the way, point is. The way to test it is just to take the roll around the loop of it. Don't detach it from the roll, but just put, you know, that loose end into the toilet flush it it'll suck the roll <laughs> and then see where, where you get up and then you can just count the you know just counting away like oh we can do 37 squares at one flush and we're okay and then you just know you're not flush more than that i mean that's you're right that's if you want to get an accurate measurement that's what we got to yeah. do um i but i figure hey like if everyone's doing it like if everyone's doing this test you're flushing five squares every right. time i could see how that would be an issue Right. But it's just me. I'm just doing it as a you know experiment as an individual. So I right. figure there's no reason to think other people no, no. my rules. Right. Of course. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah. All in all, in all, it's great time so far. What did they just Going install the bidets islands. everywhere? If you're not going to flush the toilet paper, just install a bidet. I mean, it's an island. You know, I you just use the salt. Water. I heard. I guess you to worry about corrosion at some point, but. I would, just, I would just worry about uh, people flushing the paper. I think they would just put bidets on all the toilets and just have that be their uh, MO for this unit operation. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I always hear like Europeans are like synonymous with bidets and bidets are synonymous with uh, Europe, but I have yet to see a bidet since I've been here. And I'm are, you sure you're not, are you sure you're not mistaking one for a water fountain? <laughs> you know careful. that's possible maybe, yeah. maybe you want to be careful how uh, how public are these public bathhouses get my hearing about is this a water fountain of the day is that for a uh, dog or for a child what are we doing sometimes uh, you just don't think about these things if you're thirsty you got to drink that's my philosophy and if you got to wipe you got to wipe pipe <laughs> yeah uh, very good well you know i always love a good toilet check-in around the world that could be a, a nice segment you know we just look at different bathrooms throughout the world i i, I hear that japan has good bathrooms um you have to make it down there someday yeah clean clean people in japan yeah clean clean people well, i always hear that about the islands islands always have clean people, so. well i guess i gotta say being being on the islands is different um it's sure. a, it's a there's no 
there's no idea of time here. There's no concept of time. It's island time, right? So, and especially Europeans, they just like eat dinner at like 10, 11 p.m. And then they just like literally just party till like 6 a.m. Like every night, like Monday night, Tuesday night, the COVID, no COVID. They're just always going at it. Like espresso is just like, they drink it like water. And then water is, you can't drink the water out of the pipes apparently. I don't know if it's like a lead thing or like a bacteria thing, but there's just always water bottles. There's big water bottles. And there's an unlimited amount of water bottle brands that are being served. Like just random Greek letters, different water bottle labels. Interesting enough, sometimes they'll list like the, the, uh, the water specifications on the bottles. Right. So they like list out the nitrates, like the sodium content, like, I don't know, the conductivity, like all this random, <laughs> random specifications. Like who cares about this? Hi, so, I'm going to drink it anyways. Who cares if I get sick? <laughs> no one cares. Yeah. I'm get a bottle. Drink. It's good enough for me. Yeah. That's good. It's all good stuff. Yeah. I, uh, well, hopefully, hopefully you don't get sick. It's no fun. Hopefully your car arrives on time. And, uh, where, where are you going to next? Um, so Mykonos is the last planned stop that I have. So once I get out of exile, uh, I don't know, thinking about it, a couple of different things. If any of our uh, viewers have ideas, they should let me know. I was thinking about going over to Rome or Italy, maybe Sicily, maybe some other Greek islands. Cause there's like a hundred of them. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Just play it by ear. Very good. Well, we had a fun episode today. I said the top of the uh, top of the show, discussing two chapters. We're, we're nearing the end of our journey through the beginning of Infinity, and um, today we're talking about thirteen and fourteen chapters. Thirteen and fourteen. Chapter thirteen focusing on how groups of people make choices and political systems, etc. Chapter fourteen talking about objective standards of beauty, objective standards of aesthetics, and uh, a bit of a discussion on, on where art or things like beauty may have come from, uh, which I thought was an interesting discussion as well. And I thought these were, these were two interesting chapters because especially number 13, there's this idea of um, ways that people make decisions as groups and it ties in nicely with, with the discussion that Jack and I had. Of course, last episode we had Jack Ernest on the podcast. Check him out at uh, Jack and Reno. World's Best Podcast with Jack and Reno. And, yeah, um, big shout out to Jack. Yeah, he did a great job on that. Is a great great guest as always. Um, and we were talking about... Uh, great, some of, great host. Great host. Well, well, right. On great, great host, great guest, and great beard. And uh, prob- most likely many <laughs> more things as well. And we were talking about the, uh, the limitations of, of debate and why debate is often not a, not a great way of, of getting at the truth. And I think chapter 13 touches on that very clearly because problems, a problem with the debate is that you go into a discussion with a preconceived notion of one of the ideas on the table being correct, when in reality, it's probably something that no one's thought of yet. And so you're, you immediately break off into teams and it becomes a, a competition between the teams to prove why they're right and the other side is wrong. And mm. a point that David Deutsch makes again and again in this chapter is that really what political decision-making ought to be about isn't about one side convincing the other side or compromise. It ought to be about everybody working together to create a new idea that gradually approaches um, unanimous agreement and that that ought to be what we're trying to approach. 
And I thought that was a really neat idea because it also ties into uh, the, the power of working in small teams, because when you have a small group of people, it's easier to, to work in that framework. It's easier to convince a small group of people towards one idea than it would be for like a million or something like a larger number. And so we see sure. some of the power of small ideas as well, which I always like as well. But I thought let, let's start with, 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 with chapter 13 and a, a dis discussion on how people make choices and some of the misconceptions about how we make choices when we talk about these things in kind of a, a social science or a political science uh, perspective. Yeah, and it seems so common in political discourse, like any any given topic, like it's, a, it's like, is this right or wrong? It's like universal healthcare right or wrong? Like is the death penalty right or wrong? There's no like plan C that's even being brought to the table. And uh, like he said, that's a, a, a narrow-minded way of thinking about things and issues. And it just seems like that's all we do in our political system nowadays. Um, I, what, what do you think? Well, I, I think it's it's when you align yourself with a team that almost always seems to be kind of the end of the kind of progress that David was just talking about, because it becomes more mm -hmm. about validation than about approaching something novel and, and interesting. Um, I was, you know, it, he has this idea, this, this popper's criteria for a good government is one that makes yeah. it really easy to remove bad ideas and bad leaders from power without violence. And I think this, this preoccupation that a lot of smart people have with violence is one that I find convincing. It's one that I didn't think of much about and I think about a lot more now is this idea. As it means to end the violence? As a way to, of, of, of preventing it, of, you know, how can we, how can we as people behave and interact with each other to minimize the chance of violence occurring? And I think that that's probably always on the back of people's mind when they're thinking about things. But I have to think it's, it's worth just reflecting on is how, how um, good it is, basically, that we don't rely on violence for expressing and changing political ideas so that that was it what that was in and of itself a marked improvement and the more that we focus on removing ideas basically if we approach government as an environment where we conduct political experiments and we're always trying to get to the next experiment and if this it doesn't work we try something else and that we are always in the habit of, of, of voting in that way and of setting up systems that reflect voting in that way. He mentions the plurality system of voting as a way of, of doing that. But, but I, I, think, I think you're definitely right. When, we, when you have two parties or when you have two sides of a discussion, it's, well, what about the third option or neither one of us is right? And there's some other unforeseen thing that could be the better answer. How are we setting ourselves up to make that discovery? And I don't think you're setting yourself up to make that discovery if you're going into a debate with the idea of proving why your side is correct, which is a lot, which is essentially how debates are framed at, at, at the start, which I think is a mistake. Yeah, and uh, going back to what you were saying about not having nonviolence and being able to run a system and remove bad leaders through nonviolence, um, there's a lot of inefficiencies with violence. Like I just being here looking at in Greece, like looking at all the, the history here, like a lot of there are, a lot of everything is like centered around the violence and the wars and you know you can't really 
go through this process of uh, conjecture and criticism when you're constantly fighting and starving and like losing all your family members to war like it's just the violence is it's extreme inefficiency in a system if you want to have like a golden age or any sort of uh, advancement in knowledge yeah and i, I definitely I, agree with that and i i think you know it's it's worth you know mentioning too the um you know if you think when when are people most likely to be engaged by new ideas is when they're not threatened by new ideas which is going to be typically when somebody isn't on the verge of some kind of severe suffering, whether it be, you know, material suffering or something like that, you know, it, it would be, it would be, um, if, if somebody is, is, is doing well in, in a system and is, is concerned that they won't be doing well in the future, getting them to change their mind would be hard as well. But I always, it, it always, again, I, I think comes back to this idea of how do you, how do you get people to even entertain the idea that, that they may be wrong? Uh, and that I think has to come from, from culture that, that comes from the culture mm-hmm. of the people, which is the subject of the next chapter, the chapter 15, I think is, is yes. on culture. Maybe. I mean, that's a good, I think that's a good segue. But, um, but I, I mean, I, a lot depends on getting the culture, right? Because if you're, concerned if you are threatened by a new idea then odds are you're not going to want to try it and i think that puts a a a limitation on this beginning of infinity you know type cycle where you're always trying to find a new idea and try it out but i did want to come back i I thought that he, he he ran through a couple of these you know paradoxes that arise from different from different voting systems and i i thought that was interesting um but I, I, I thought, you know, what was you know, basically one of the takeaways is that um, one one system of decision making that is of, devoid of any kind of paradoxes, and we can get more into those paradoxes in a moment. But one of those that one such system that that's devoid of paradoxes is when you have unanimous agreement. And of course, the problem is that that almost never arises. And the more people you have, yeah. the rarer it is that you have unanimous agreement. But I thought it was an interesting point, nonetheless, that there is this kind of golden criteria of decision making where everybody gets what they want. And what is it when everybody wants the same thing? But that can be dangerous as well. <laughs> if everybody wants the same thing, it happens to be wrong. And you had this mass cor- correction in the other direction. Um, you know, I, I was thinking uh, another, another place where you have. Uh, unanimous decision-making is when you have people acting as individuals and you have a party of one unanimous decision-making. And so, you know, if you kind of maximize individual choice and allow people to do what they want, you know, to to a certain degree, you can just take away the decision-making of the group and just have it fall on the individual. Maybe that's a way of trying to get around some of these uh, challenges of decision-making as well. Yeah, it reminds me, I was listening to Scott Adams the other day and he likes to talk about polls and like review polls. And something that he's found amongst like all polls is that 25% of people, no matter what the question or what is being polled, will just have some outrageous answer that makes no sense. Like the, the question could be like, would you like to be thrown off a cliff? And uh, 25% of people like without failure will always end up saying like, yeah, I, I, I could smash that. Like that would make sense. But that's what he's saying is that's just how hard it is to get like a unanimous decision on anything. Because 25% of the people are just going to fuck up the answer. Like whether they're just trying to like play with the system or mess it up or just troll the pollster. I don't know. Who knows what? Or they're just stupid. 
there's always going to be that 25% of the screws that don't. So funny you were talking about unanimous systems. Like right. That's, that's a, definitely a limitation. Well, and, and so, you know, diving just a little bit more into some of the specifics of this chapter, one of the, the, one of the uh, criteria that comes up is this notion of, of proportional representation in the government, which is this idea that you elect people who win a majority of the vote. So you have three people running for office and neither one of them wins more than 50% of the vote. What you would do is like, maybe you do a runoff between the, between the top two people. And yeah. so that would be a proportional, a proportional election system. But in contrast that with a plurality election system where we have the same scenario, three people running, and even if none of the three have a majority of the vote, the person is elected who has the most votes. Yes. This, this kind of system, David gives various examples, but this kind of system prioritizes removing bad leaders from power and prioritizes, in a sense, removing bad uh, groups because it tends to be the case that, you know, when one party... When, when one person in a, in a party, in a plurality system, you know, it tends to be that the party as a whole does well. And so you're putting large groups of people at the same party into power at one time. But on, on the converse, you also have the potential for moving that large block from power as well. And I was just, you know, the, the, he, he contrasts that with the, with the, with the, repres- or with the proportional election system because of or rather with respect to um, this notion of the, of the tyranny of, of a third party, which I always think is a funny thing that can arise. But to give people an idea of what this is like, if you have three people that are running for office and the top two people have almost all of the vote between the two of them, yeah. but don't have a, they don't have a majority, they have to cater to the third party to win their votes to, to, to push them over that 50% limit. And so what you can do is inadvertently what you're doing is you're giving all the power to a tiny, tiny fraction of the people in order to, to overcome that majority vote. And so in, in effect, you don't even have, at that point, that third party has um, you know, so much more power than the way that, that, they, that the majority of the country was voting. I always think that things like that are, are, are kind of funny. I mean, obviously they have important, and they have important side effects, but I always think it's funny how... Um, these unintended consequences end up happening. I think tyranny of the third party is a, is, a, is, a, is a funny one that can happen in coalition government. And he gave some historical examples of that in the book that I thought were funny as well. Yeah, no, I, I think that there's a lot, a lot to unpack there, probably more than we can do um, so today. But um, like I said, I am running on island time here. Um, so I, I just want to ask, to kind of segue into the next chapter and ask sure. you, Jim, the next question. Um, what makes flowers beautiful? Yes, which is the title of chapter 14. Um, in, in short, I'll give David Deutsch's answer, which I found pretty convincing. I think it's a good argument. Um, the reason that we find flowers beautiful is because we can recognize in the flower a kind of intelligence that was behind its design. Of course, this is an, an intelligence that came about from coevolution between the flower and the insect that it was evolving with through the pollination nectar you know, feedback mechanism. 
But the, the reason right. that we find a flower beautiful is because we can recognize that, it, that the flower is serving some kind of purpose. And that in line with other ideas in David Deutsch's book, when, when things serve a purpose, they're hard to vary without making worse. And we can recognize that kind of design detail in a, in a flower, which allows us to pick it out, you know, as, as being u- uniquely, um, it, it uniquely stands out among other things in nature because um, it very clearly was designed. Of course, I'm saying designed in quotes, it was designed by an evolutionary process with, with an insect that was, it was evolving with. But, uh, but that would ensure be the answer that David Deutsch gets, that, that beauty is kind of, a, is, is, a, is a response to a recognition of intelligence and that beauty evolves from an ability for uh, intelligence to communicate across species barriers. And then also potentially in, in, in human culture, art could have served as a way for different human groups that had never contacted each other before. How can I convince you that I am a human? How can I communicate to you as, as, as a human? Art may be a way of doing that. You know, this, this, this highly elaborate system of symbols or musical notes, et cetera, that are hard to bear with yeah. worse. We can recognize that as art, and that becomes a way of you know of interacting with each other across you know language barrier or whatever else it may be. Yeah, I like how he he said that it's hard to define exactly what is what art is and what beauty is. Certainly, there's some objective measure of it. If uh, uh, through natural selection, flowers look the way they do, like maybe if a flower looks one way, it attracts more bees than if the flower looked the other way. Uh, but then he talks about like Mozart and like music and how how it's uh, there's no like objective truth to a lot of art. To some there is, you can measure it, but to some there isn't. And then I, I remember he was also talking about things like elegance and how like elegance, I believe he defined is the a, a simple way to define truth, I think, or something like that. It's like and, the simplest yeah. way to, to define truth. A heuristic. Truth. Yeah, it's a, it's a heuristic for identifying what we Correct. It isn't yeah. always right, but it tends to be on the right path. Is kind of what he describes as elegance and truth. And, much that, the two of them. and I, I liked how he was also talking about how uh, in in beauty, like something that looks humans, we have a certain we can only perceive certain wavelengths. We can only perceive certain sound waves, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, like to an extraterrestrial, our art might be like just completely meaningless because maybe they can only interpret radio waves, and then they just come here and they just don't see any of the same things that we see. Um, I, I thought that was a, a interesting perspective to put things into. Um, but it is a good question, like what makes art art? Like what makes it beautiful? And like what's the overlap between art and science? Well, I, I think. You know, going back to the example of even like the aliens, it was interesting point of like, well, you know, we may not be able to see what they see, but we we could be we should be able to devise a kind of machine that say that we could wear over our eyes and then you know to, to see the wavelengths of light. It gives the example of like radio telemetry for uh, like radio telescopes for that kind of thing. Yeah, that, um, we can we can we can transcend our limitations of you know, our eyes working a certain way or, you know, something like that, we, we, we should, we conceivably could transcend those kind of experiences that we're limited to and 
you know, who knows what else he gives kind of in the end of the chapter, he gives this, this discussion that maybe one day we could actually, you know, live the world through the, through the mind of a bat or something. And that, you know, we could have yeah. the location be a way that we interact with the world. And that would open up whole other ranges of art that we haven't even conceived of yet because we don't use echolocation or we don't think like a bat does. And so, so, yeah, the, the, so the, 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 the frontier of art is, uh, you know, obviously limitless because I'm not only, you know, can we have all the things to clear out now that we have with our own visual hearing abilities, but, um, but also the abilities that we may not even have yet, that we may have in the future. Um, it's more, more even expands that ability as well. I wanted to come back to um, one thing. Let me see, I had, a, I had a note here. All right, yeah, let's, let's, let's uh, address that and then let's get this movie review because I am uh, working on borrowed time here. Yes, yes. Let me, let me, then let me, let me do this real quick. I, I made an argument last, maybe two episodes ago with you, with capitalism mm -hmm. and the beginning of the oh, yeah. um, I was I was hesitant to say that that idea was inspired by Nassim Taleb because I'm always afraid that I'm going to like say that that's true and he's going to be like, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I thought about it more <laughs> and I, now I, I feel comfortable saying that I, I do think that idea was heavily inspired, if not taken from Nassim Taleb. So Hopefully he agrees with me from what I said last episode. Um, and then what, just a recap, what was the idea? Just Basically, capitalism and, and private property allows you to take risks and localize the consequences to yourself and to your property. And that when we live mm -hmm. in the beginning of infinity, that necessitates a kind of knowledge frontier beyond which everything is, is a guess about what, what, what is true and is not true. So I think an ethical way to, to approach that problem is to allow people to make decisions for themselves, which in my mind necessitates a kind of need for private property because it's that property yeah. that you are using to make that bet. So I think that's more or less what it, what the scene means, what's getting in the game. But like I said, I'm always hesitant that right, I, right. I miss something from him. He's like, what are you talking about? But in any event, if he agrees or not, it'll be fine. Um, okay, let's, let's go to the movie review. And then let's just give a summary of both chapters and that they can close it. I know, I know you got to get going. I do want to get to the movie review. So Joe, when you're ready, let's uh, let's have it for this one. Okay, let's. Uh, we got a good movie, movie review this week. This one is uh, Werewolves Within is the name of the movie, and you can watch it uh, select theaters and for rent on Amazon and other digital platforms. So what it's about. The residents of a small town divided over a proposed pipeline get snowed in just as mysterious creatures begin to surround them. Newly arrived forest ranger Finn Wheeler attempts to stop the creature before the townspeople tear each other apart through fear and suspicion. Is it good? Yes. Based on the virtual reality game of the same time, it's a fun ride that easily takes the title for the best video game adaptation um in film history granted that's not the highest bar i've never played the game but my understanding is it's similar to the card game one night ultimate werewolf which i highly recommend wherein players must debate and decide who amongst them is a werewolf in order to win the game ironically the question of the werewolf's identity is the film's big failing it is a bit like knives out in that way there may be a large cast of exaggerated characters who, who you don't trust, but too many of them are easily discarded as suspects and relatively sharp viewers will realize one suspect towers above the rest, 
Knives Out was otherwise so well written and performed that the ultimate lack of mystery was fine. Whereas Werewolves suffers a bit from that lack of suspense. Still, there's plenty to enjoy here. Uh, hold on, sorry. Still, there's plenty to enjoy here. An opening quote from Mr. Rogers, accompanied by an over-the-top horror scene, sets the tone for the both comedically and thematically. While it has its suspenseful moments, the film isn't heavy on scares. This is more Tucker and Dale than, uh, than Cabin in the Woods. So those wary of horror need not worry. Comedy is much more the aim here, and the film hits. The cast is filled with skilled uh, comedic actors whose names you likely don't know, but whose faces you'll recognize. And it's enjoyable watching them dig into their characters, especially as they begin to descend into the Lord of the Flies like madness. Um, the highlight through, the highlight though, is Sam Richardson, whose amiable forest ranger attempts with the, am, uh, with the aid of mail carrier Cecily um, Milani Vinatra, ably pro proving she's capable of being more than the AT&T woman. To keep everyone on the same page in the face of, of the threat, as in his best-known role of Richard Splett on Veep, Richardson's good-natured Finn stands in sharp contrast to the characters surrounding him. Here, with his character's naivety turned down to more human level, Richardson proves adept at playing the straight man at a sea on insanity. He makes Finn somewhat worth rooting for, whether we're laughing with him or at him. Of course, most of the townsfolk ultimately succumb to their greed and paranoia. And while that's bad for them, it serves the film as well. Their unlikably, unlikability allows werewolves to more easily maintain its comedic tone, even as the death toll mounts, and drives home its thematic point. That especially in time of crisis. It's important to be a good neighbor. Um, and here, other films to watch? Uh, for another horror comedy involving a small town and potential murder by werewolf, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. For horror comedy, but with vampires, Fright Night, 2011. And for the best horror comedy of them all, Cabin in the Woods. So there you have it. Cabin in the Woods, by the way, if anybody who hasn't seen it, is uh, definitely worth watching. I have not seen this, this werewolf movie, but I, I do want to see it. And I do enjoy the card game that he mentioned at the beginning. Uh, it's a fun and game. Knives, Knives Out as well is a great movie. Knives Out is an excellent movie, and I enjoyed that one uh, also. Joe, I know you're going to get going. Let's let's summarize Chapter 13. Um, good decisions are hard to vary. Good decisions are hard to come by, which is why compromises are not always very beneficial. And um, as a result, rather than trying to compete for pre-existing ideas or to come up with compromise ideas, we ought to always be in the business of conjecturing new ideas that win even are ever more and more support. Do you agree with that? Would that be a good summary of chapter 13? Joe, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Wait, no, sorry. Drown out no, the sound a little. It's fine. Okay. So, now chapter 14. 
Chapter 14, why flowers are beautiful. So the flower and the insect face an interesting problem. Two different species need a way to communicate to each other despite not having any in common genetics to work from. How do two things converge? We learned from the dream of Socrates, the last chapter, that it is we converge towards the truth. We will always converge with each other when we converge towards the truth. Therefore, the flower represents a structure of universal appeal, a universal beauty standard. As a result, it is also hard to vary, which is important because it prevents other flowers from being able to easily replicate the flower's design because good art is hard to forge. Sorry, we're having some. Uh, no, it's some okay. <clears throat> I wanted maybe, to maybe this one up. Okay, all right, very good. Um, I think those will do it, folks, for this episode. Episode number forty, a great another forty weeks in the making. Um, had a lot of fun, Joe. I know that you're busy. Get back out there, have some fun. We'll see you next week, everybody. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Follow Joe on social media at Jose four underscore Squarevo on Instagram and Twitter. Follow Roses and Rhetoric at roses underscore rhetoric on Instagram and Twitter, and then our YouTube channel as well. Just search roses and rhetoric. We will come right up until next time. I'm Jimmy Hackett signing off for justice Stanford. Ciao. Ciao.